Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Well, good evening and welcome to episode 000101 of The Mission. My name is Daniel James. I am broadcasting to you from Radio City Docklands. And as we know, Radio City Docklands is on the Wurundjeri lands of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. And I remind us all that this land always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Now, we've got a good show for you coming up uh, tonight. Shortly, I'll be joined by Taddy Taddy Man, Brendan Kennedy. Uh, anyone who follows the plight of the Murray-Darling Basin knows the management of the basin is a bit of a joke, so much so that the people who know the most about a healthy river system are the ones that are least involved. So Brendan has some knowledge and he has views, and um, he will speak to us about all that shortly. There's a lot to dive into, pardon the pun. And in the second half of the show, we'll be joined by uh, the wonderful Bronwyn Carlson. Bronwyn is a professor at Macquarie University, and she's penned an article on the lack of outrage displayed across mainstream society about the violence suffered by Aboriginal women. It's a very interesting read and it's a very interesting discussion, particularly in the current climate. Now, I'm going to do something. I don't really feel like pontificating tonight, so forgive me. But um, uh, I'm going to do something a little bit different to kick off the show. I thought I'd tell you about some of the books I've collected over the years relating to Aboriginal Australia and Aboriginal matters. Now, if you look at your radio video very closely, you'll be able to see that I have two stacks of books either side of me, and a few on the floor. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to each book, uh, read the title, the author, tell you a little bit about it, and um, we may not get time to go through all of them in, in the intro here because I've got music to play and guests to speak to, but uh, let's uh, let's kick it off with uh, the stack of pile of books to my left. Okay, first book. This one is called Who Killed the Curries? The True Terrible Story of of Australia's founding years by Michael Cannon. It's actually one of the earlier earliest books to actually start talking about uh, true history, particularly in this part of the world. Um, it's a confronting book. It's a book that goes in depth. Um, it goes back as far as 1838, the settle, settlement of the colony. It relates specifically to Victoria. Um, you'll probably be able to find it in secondhand books, stores, or on eBay, or you know, one of those other type uh, websites. Uh, this book here is called Dark Emu by a fellow called Bruce Pascoe. It is a book that has basically changed the face of Australia, in my opinion. Um, he used first settler accounts to actually go in and delve into the true history of this country, and what he found was startling. He found that settlers, particularly in the southeast here of Australia, uh, came across Aboriginal people who were living sophisticated lives. Um, they weren't um, uh, hunter-gatherers, they were actually farmers, um, and he uses the first accounts of the first settlers. So that makes it very difficult for uh, racist comment, um, commentators to actually challenge him on this matter because he's using the white race to tell the true history of this country. 
Uh, third book here by Chloe Hooper called The Tall Man. Now, we know that there is a spate of Indigenous deaths in custody at the moment. This one refers to one that actually happened on Palm Island way back in the early 2000s. It's a um, harrowing tale, beautifully written. Chloe Hooper is a fantastic writer, and she's done a fantastic job here. Life springs from every page of this enthralling book. Australians will weep over it. It is first-class reportage meticulously researched, studded with superb, superb observed human detail and all the more moving for its intense restraint. And uh, that is a recommendation from Helen Garter on the back of the book. The Biggest Estate on Earth, How Aborigines Made Australia by Bill Gamage. Um, it came out around about the same time as Dark Emu, funnily enough, and it takes a, um, a similar... A, 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 it discovers similar things about um, the way Aboriginal people used to farm and cultivate the land um, in this country. Um, it didn't receive the same sort of outrage from some of the right-wing shock jocks. Um, Bill is not an Aboriginal person. Um, Bruce Pascoe is. So I'm just trying to work out why the outrage for one book and not the outrage for another. Okay, another book here we've got is Australia Day by Stan Grant. As we know, Stan Grant is a, um, uh, a journalist of uh, high esteem. He's a thinker and he's thought very deeply on the ins and outs of um, the national holiday that is Australia Day, known as Invasion Day by many of us. Um, I spoke to him on the show, so if you want to go to rr.org.au, um, I spoke to him about this book um, probably a couple of years ago. Um, it's, a, it's a riveting book, um, well written as um, um, expected from Stan. Uh, William Cooper, Gentle Warrior by Barbara Miller. Now, this is a book that has been independently published, so you'll have to actually um, Google this one, William Cooper, Gentle Warrior. It basically goes into life and times of uh, William Cooper and the people uh, surrounding him at the time. Um, it's a very good book if you want to do some research and find out about the life of the great man and those that were around him and working with him at the time to get the social justice movement in this country up and happening. The Original Australians by Josephine Flood is, a, I guess, a very anthropological look at um, First Nations communities before settlement. Um, it goes into um, the, the practices that Aboriginal people um, undertook um, in various parts of the country. Um, it's quite confronting in some of the um, the, the findings it, uh, it, it found um, relating to hunger and uh, the use of uh, smallpox as a chemical weapon, uh, a biological weapon, I should say, against Aboriginal people. Um, but that, that is a very thorough book and one uh, well worth reading if you uh, want to get into this stuff further. The Original Australians by Josephine Flood. Um, this book is by um, Murray Johnson and Ian McFarlane. It's called Van Diemen's Land. There's been a lot written about the history of Aboriginal people in um, Tasmania, as it is now known. And this one takes a deep dive into the plight of Aboriginal um, uh, men and women and the fact that they were basically eradicated from Tasmania. This shows you how, why the prevailing attitudes and the, I guess the the legacy of, of all that. So uh, Van Diemen's Land, an Aboriginal history by Murray Johnson and Ian McFarlane. Uh, what else have we got here? Uh, here's a book I picked up not long ago. It is called uh, Does the Media Fail Aboriginal Political Aspirations? 45 Years of News Media Reporting of Key Political Moments. It is written by Amy Thomas, Andrew Djokovic and Heidi Norman. Um the short answer is yes, it does. <laughs> but if you want to go in and have a look at the book and uh, find out exactly why 
Um, it goes into um, really forensic detail about uh, some of the ins and outs of the political coverage and the media coverage that Aboriginal people receive, and that actually ties into the conversation I'll, I'll be having with uh, Professor Bronwyn Carlson very short, shortly. Uh, Lewitcher, the authorised biography of Lewitcher O'Donoghue, one of the great advocates, one of the great um, leaders in our community for more than half a dec- um, half a century now. Um, it's by Stuart Rintoul, who was a great writer, great journalist. Um, if you want to find out about the life of this remarkable woman, um, please, by all means, do. Now, less than 1% of the Murray-Darling Basin River system is owned by Aboriginal people. The Murray-Darling Basin plan, which was designed to increase environmental flows back into waterways, has largely failed, basically due to a lack of implementation or any attempts to rejig the plan, uh, faces stiff opposition from a series of vested interests aided and abetted by the likes of uh, the National Party, that to me seems to be a party that does very little for anyone except for their political donors. Now, Brendan Kennedy, who was our first guest this evening, was born at Robinvale on Taddy Taddy Country and is a descendant of the Taddy Taddy Waddy Waddy and Muddy Muddy tribal lands and language groups. He has seen up close and personal the impact mismanagement and inaction has had on the river and has long advocated for increased ownership of the basin uh, for First Nations groups. Uh, so I'm very pleased to say that Brendan is on the line now from just outside of uh, Mildura. Brendan, welcome to the mission. Oh, hello. Thank you. Thanks for having me. No, thank you. Um, what's gone wrong? Why are we in this position where the, the the basin itself, the rivers within the basin, seem to be suffering um, uh, the, the effects of, I guess, global warming? But there is a plan in place. What, what's gone wrong with that plan? Well, there is a plan in place, and it was developed, you know, over 10 years ago. But, yeah, I think largely New South Wales has failed to, to follow anything that resembles a plan, New South Wales in particular, but pretty much the states and the Commonwealth uh, really passing the buck. They're failing to enforce pretty much the law, water law in this country. Mm. Um, not, that it, not that it is an advantage for First Nations. I'm a, I'm a First Nations official owner, but we have, you know, on top of, you know, colonisation where the colonial squatters and um, settlers took up all the, all the river frontage and water frontage right through the whole basin. So gradually over time they've set up a system that suited them all mm-hmm. and um, and they've run our people away from our waterways off country. Mm-hmm. And so now, you know, fast track to today, 2021, we have, to me, I think the bottom, the bottom line is it's just corruption and greed. Mm-hmm. Um, especially in New South Wales. I'll call New South Wales out. Um, particularly those, yeah, you know, those those big irrigators up up of the um, upstream, up at the top of the Darling Darling River system, the Barwon Darling. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask you, Brendan, who, who has all the water? Where, where is all the water at the moment? Yeah, well, that's, you know, you know that, Annually, every year, 30,000 gigalitres of water, 30,000 billion litres of water 
um, flows through the system every year. Whether it's from the sky, the mountains, rainfall, etc. Yep. Um, but that all that water's not reaching. It's not flowing down through all the way through country, all the way to the Purong in South Australia. It is getting sucked up every which way but loose. Everywhere everywhere within the basin and the simple reason is it is worth money. That water is worth a lot of money. And so that is the problem. And um, of course when there's money involved, then you'll have um, yeah, you have corruption. You have greed and corruption, and that's why we have a failed, um, a failed Murray-Darling Basin system. And you know, it wouldn't matter what what basin, what plan was in place, uh, when you've got state and state and federal ministers, water ministers in particular, uh, particularly New South Wales and the Commonwealth, um, who are allowing their you know their supporters who are the big, big irrigators, especially the cotton growers, cotton industry. Um, so, yeah, how does that look for First Nations people? It's shocking. And I, and I heard you say less than 1%. Well, less than 1%, one, less than 1% is actually, uh, that's beefing it up, actually. It's actually less than a quarter of a 1%. <laughs> it, it's wow. 0.12%. So it's absolutely disgraceful. And of course, that river has been feeding the the lifeblood and the bellies of uh, Aboriginal people for uh, for millennia. Um, an obvious question, Brendan: um, What role could First Nations community communities play in looking after the health of the system? What what can Mob Up there offer to assist in looking after this precious resource? Oh well, you know. For a start, we got we've been locked out. We've been locked out of of away from an an access. We've been stopped from go, being near our waterways, and it is being sold off and polluted and contaminated right before our very eyes. It's been killed. So what we bring back, you know, <laughs> we've been the managers, the stewards, the you know the owners. Um, you know, we've been caring for our waterways, you know, for at least a hundred thousand years. You know, because um, you know these these waterways are they're millions of years old. These waterways. So some know, of the, some of those waterways, Brendan, didn't exist until about twenty five thousand years ago because of things like um, earthquakes and the like. So we we've yeah. been there longer than some of the rivers. It, absolutely, you know, you're talking about the Cadell Fault up in. Uh, That's right, exactly. Up around, Paduka, up around the Echuca area, you know. So, yeah. and and you can talk about, you know, um, the Great Bay down in Melbourne, um, but that's outside the basin. But we have yeah. all the stories, you know, Lake Mungo dried up ten thousand years ago. You know, we yeah. have all the knowledge because we've we're still, you know, we're still on the country, uh, and. And that knowledge doesn't get wiped out in 200 years. So we, that's what we bring. We bring, plus we bring a love of country. We bring our connection and our real, uh, the word genuine, well, when it applies to us. And we bring genuine caring for our country and our water. Um, if, if so the, we, have our, we have our sciences. Our traditional sciences has to be um, embedded in today's water management. 
if the the Murray Darling Basin was actually implemented as is, um, how would that improve the river? Would we see an improvement? Well, we should. Well, you know, like if they follow that plan, and there is apparently water that's supposed to be put back to the environment, you know, which is thirty two hundred gigalitres. Um, now they've cut that down. It's down to something like 20, 2,700 gigalitres. So they're taking more water off the environment. So you have to look after the environment. Uh, if you've got a healthy environment, a healthy ecosystem, a healthy waterway, healthy rivers, then you're going to have healthy people. And, you know, that, that translates into, you know, if we want to talk about industry, you know, the colonisers' industry, well, that, that would translate into a healthy industry. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's, it makes such, such sense to look after that asset, if they class it as an asset, we class it as our country, look after it, and it would look after everyone. But they've really made a, a real mess. And, um, you know, we're heading into... Over the next 50 years, this, this country's going to get drier and drier. So, um, you know... So we need to look after get, the river. We need to look after the river system more now than more now than, than ever. And it just seems to be yep. being abused more now than ever. Um, the uh, Federal Water Minister at the time, uh, David Littleproud, announced $40 million over three years to uh, Indigenous Australians to economically participate in water and ensure that uh, they not only benefit um, economically but uh, also had cultural outcomes. Has anything happened with that? No. That was two years ago. Yeah. I think it was... Bit over actually so three years ago. Yeah, three years ago, and we they haven't released that funding. They they have not. We have not even seen one red cent of that dollar. The nations within the basin. It's up to nearly fifty nations in the basin. So you have Enban, the Northern Basin Aboriginal nations, and you have Melbourne, Murray Lower Darling Rivers, and Indigenous nations. Uh, not one nation. Uh, not one person. <laughs> Not one First Nations person is. We we have not seen a red cent of that. Um, they've held it up, and um, you know, it's a, you know, it, it's more than a failure. Yeah, it's it's, um, it's it's neglect. It's neglect, but you know, it. If they're going to say they're going to do something, and they commit to something, and then they turn around and. Basically, leave it, leave it over on the side of the road somewhere, and don't even address it, and just turn a blind eye to it and just ignore that. And that's how we have been treated like for two hundred and thirty years. Well, it's it's, it's emblematic, isn't it? Put us out, put us out of the way, out of sight, out of mind, and just pretend that we don't even exist. And this is exactly the, what they're doing with this forty million dollars for us. To it's funny because it's because. It's, it's really unlike this government to announce something and not deliver, but that's um, that's another point. What needs to be done? What what needs to be done? We need to obviously <clears throat> uh, get that. Um, I think it's thirty two uh, gigalitres of water um, back 3, into to, to thirty two hundred gigalitres of water back into environmental flows. That's part of the current plan. Obviously, that's something that needs to happen um, sooner rather than later. Is that right? Yeah, that was that was the original. 
you know, that was the original amount of water that was um, recovered back from, you know, from farmers, irrigators, um, from the water, um, yeah, from the, from the water holdings. But, yeah, over, over time, over the last 10 years, you know, Barnaby Joyce played a, played a role in that, in um, using water, you know, as a political tool. And so yeah. now they've, they've, they've reduced it down to 2,700. You know, that's a lot of water. And, you know, where's the consideration for us, you know, the traditional owners, the First Peoples? Um, you know, I think the Darling River, the Barker, is a classic example, you know, how mm. they've absolutely starved that ancient um, river of water. And, you know, look at the harm it's done on, the, on those people, the Barkindji people. Um, and this is happening right across the basin. Um, literally, literally starved that waterway of all the oxygen that it had, and we saw that in the uh, the massive uh, fish kills and um, that we saw. I think it was last year before last. It's um, everything's a yeah. bit of a blur at the moment, Brendan, because of the pandemic in terms of time continuums. Um, do you? Well, before I let you go, Brendan, do you? Uh, have any optimism that this is going to change? What's going to ta- what's it going to take for it to change? Is it going to be a change of government? Is it um, going to be just enforcement of the current plan? What needs to happen to improve the health of that system? Yeah, well, I'm on, I'm always an optimist. You know, I'll never give up. Got to we'll, be. We'll keep, we'll keep striving. You know, for our, our recognition as the true and first water owners, water managers in this country. So that'll never stop. And we've got a lot of people, a lot of passionate warriors within Mildred and Enban. And so, you know, we'll, we'll continue to, you know, push our case, argue, argue with governments, argue with the states and the federal government, you know, and, and to get, you know, water back to our people, number one. So that's first, that's what needs to happen. They need to hand back water back to us. Hand the water back. Every First Nation person within the basin, we, um, you know, we've been deprived of our inherent rights to our water. Hand it back. That's number one. There's a lot of water. As I said, there's there's 32,000 gigalitres of water flowing through the basin every year. So, you know, hand back our water to us and resource us so that we can we can be in a position to help manage the basin. At the end of the day, what what traditional owners and Aboriginal groups up there are offering is to actually look after the waterway, and if that is done, that is for the betterment of everyone that lives along yeah. the basement and everyone that benefits from the produce, the food, and, and the resources that are produced out of that basin. Uh, Brendan Kennedy, thank you so much for your time. Um, drive safely. Um, this evening. Um, this show will be available to you and other Aboriginal groups um, within the basin to uh, continue the good fight. But I thank you for your time this evening. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Um, the world is changing and hopefully it's changing for the better. We've seen in recent months the March for Justice movement, which has resulted in a deep conversation about the treatment of women in the workplace, at home and across society. It's a long overdue conversation that you can see being held um, across a myriad of mainstream news outlets on a, on a day, daily basis. 
But there's enough being said and done about women that suffered the most from the scourge of things like domestic violence, Indigenous women, Aboriginal women. Aboriginal women are 30 times more, 32 more times more likely to be hospitalised as a result of family violence, and Aboriginal women are five times more likely to die from homicide than non-Aboriginal women. Then, of course, we have the appalling overrepresentation of Aboriginal women in the Aboriginal uh, within the justice system, I should say. Uh, the amount of children in out-of-home care, and um, you wonder why this horror show isn't making the news on a nightly basis. Uh, thankfully, Professor Bronwyn Carlson has penned an article ruminating on just that. Bronwyn is an Aboriginal woman who was born and lives on Dearawal <laughs> country in New South Wales. Oh, forgive me, Bronwyn. It's been a long day. Um, she's widely published on the <laughs> topics okay. of Indigenous cultural, social and intimate political engagements on social media. Uh, the professor is also the founding and managing editor of a journal of global in 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 ingenuity. Gee, I'm struggling now, Bronwyn. Uh, you'll have to take over in a sec. <laughs> it's a long day. <laughs> and she's the convener of the Forum of Indigenous Research Excellence, um, also known as FIRE. She's written an article for the conversation entitled No Public Outrage, No Vigils, Australia's Silence on Violence Against Indigenous Women. And I'm very pleased to say that Bronwyn is on the line with us now. Bronwyn, welcome to the mission. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on the show. No, absolute pleasure. Um, so, yes, um, I... Go forward. We have a bit of a delay, but we'll work around it. Okay, I, I was just going to say, um, yeah, I was compelled to write that article after I saw the March for Justice as a mm -hmm. result of the alleged rape in Parliament House. And it occurred to me how many times I watched the news in the evening and I see the violent deaths of women being recorded, but I never see or hear the violent deaths of or violence perpetrated against um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women uh, reported on the news, but I do see it on social media and that many strong Indigenous voices on social media bring those stories um, to the fore so we can hear and see them so that they actually, you know, become noticed, that they become um, news. And so it really annoys me that mainstream media, which is often being referred to as white stream media, doesn't report on the atrocities committed against us. It would be um, frightening to to know where some of these stories would go and what would happen to them if it wasn't for social media, Bronwyn, um, because there's, there's a thing called Black Twitter and we all get on there and we... Um, um, so many of us, um, particularly a lot of strong Aboriginal women, have their ear to the ground. They're close to the services. They're on the front line often. And they're the ones that are covering the stories. They're not journalists. They're just people that care. Um, why is there an ongoing silence on matters relating to Aboriginal women in the mainstream media? What, what can we derive from that silence? Look, I can, you know, honestly say, and this is stuff that other people, have, other Indigenous people have raised, particularly Amy Maguire, um, yep. who has a background in journalism, but is also pretty prolific on social media. And, you know, she was speaking to the Royal Commission the 30 years um, for the death in custody. And she was, you know, on the, I think she was on the drum and she was saying, you know, it's, People just don't care. Mainstream Australia has a lack of care, and I think we saw that with the March for Justice. And certainly Indigenous women and Indigenous non-binary people marched 
um, for violence against Indigenous people um, at those marches. But the the march itself was organised mostly by non-Indigenous women in response to violence against non-Indigenous women. And Latoya Rule um, came out and, and put out a tweet that said, you know, imagine if a whole bunch of white women, um, you know, I'm paraphrasing here as well, you know, formed a circle around Parliament House um, over the death of a black woman. Imagine that. And to tell the truth, I can't imagine that because it's never actually happened where there's been public outrage over um, the killing of um, Indigenous people, but Indigenous women in this context. And the other thing is, is that we even don't know the statistics on non-binary people. So our uh, trans brothers and sisters, um, the LBGTQI community that is subject to high rates of um, family violence and um, other forms of violence also. We just don't even have that information, which um, is really distressing as well. Yeah, it seems to me, Bronwyn, that whenever there is a story around things like deaths in custody, around violence suffered by Aboriginal women, domestic violence in particular, when it is covered on mainstream shows, it's just kind of like this. There's this pity. Um, there's this pity that is expressed. Um, there's a there's a knowing shake of the head. There is um, uh, uh, a conversation about it, but it's never carried forward as an ongoing agenda, like we've seen with the March for Justice movement, which has been taken up by news outlets um, uh, right across the spectrum. Um, what what can we do to, to 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 change that? Is it just the fact that we're only three percent of the population, and at the end of the day, um, these issues don't rate? Well, you you know, I think they would like us to um, console ourselves with the fact that we're three percent of the population, and therefore shouldn't have a big voice. But that's not the case. We're First Nations people. We're the people of this land. This is our country, our continent, our countries, I should say. And so we have a special place here. And the fact that Australia is, it, you know, sells itself as this first world nation cannot stop the violence against Indigenous people is actually quite shameful, given we're only 3% of the population. That in itself is really shameful. And, you know, some of the things that we can do and we are doing, and I see Indigenous people using social media really wisely in this space. And in that article, I spoke about the work that um, human rights um, and legal scholar Hannah McGlade is doing around um, deaths of Aboriginal women in particular in Western Australia. And she raised the issue about Stacey Thorne and asked our watch to actually um, make some comment on that case. Here's an Indigenous woman who was murdered. Um, she was pregnant when she was murdered. And the person who was um, accused of um, her murder was actually then acquitted and set free and is now um, likely to receive compensation from the state. But there are unanswered questions in that case in which Hannah actually brings to the fore. And so um, Hannah spoke to myself and Dr Marlene Longbottom, and that's when we penned that open letter calling for our yeah. watch to actually say something on the death of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women. And the truth is, is that they don't. And so their response to us was that they don't um, speak up on particular cases, but we pointed out that they had spoken out about um, Brittany Higgins and Hannah Clark cases individually, so they actually do. So we've been actually speaking with them about um, a national committee that actually is specific 
to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women to look at violence against um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women. And, and I really sometimes worry about this framing um, about family violence. And I know it's supposed to um, make things a little bit, give things some more context about where the violence happens, but it also just tells non-Indigenous people or it leads them to want to know that it's just Indigenous men who are perpetrators, and that is absolutely not the truth. And so when we talk about violence against Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women, and even I pointed out in that article a case where it was two non-Indigenous men were the perpetrators, the comments to that article all pointed to Aboriginal men being perpetrators. Yeah, and the the details... Um, around her, her death are just absolutely horrific, and uh, it took a long time for any semblance of justice to even be seen to be to be done. Um, you write you write in the article that um, violence against Indigenous women is deeply ingrained in Australia's um, colonial history, which condoned the murder, rape, and sexual abuse of Indigenous women. Um, in some ways, are we seeing that? objectification of Aboriginal women still filter through to the way the broader community sees Aboriginal women today? Oh, absolutely. Like, and this is not even colonial times that I'm talking about. So um, I actually raised the point in the 1980s, um, you know, a Miles Franklin Award winner, Xavier Herbert, was went on record in a public newspaper talking about how he used to go out on um, these big gin-rooting hunts, and gin being obviously a derogatory word referring to Aboriginal women, and he referred to how they used to rape them when they fell pregnant, throw them overboard, um, and making all these horrid comments about Indigenous women. And this is a person who won the Miles Franklin Award, um, who is revered in the public realm as a somebody who um, you know is one of the great people that we should be commemorating in this country, and that's how they speak about in, Indigenous women. So it's not so much that it's even colonial history, but it's linked to that because those are the same kinds of conversations we see in the records of colonists themselves in the way in which they speak about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women, really derogatory ways, derogatory terms used um, for their sexual sexual usefulness for colonisers, to quote another Aboriginal scholar, Corinne Sullivan. So we see that, we can map that trajectory so we know that it's there, and then you can see it in the public domain. When an Aboriginal woman is sexually assaulted um, and beaten to death on a beach, and the headline reads, wild sex leads to a you know, wild sex and drinking, I can't remember the exact terms, leads to this death. So it's framed in a way that consent is not needed and nor is it of any any concern to anybody because this is her fault for having a drink and going to a party. But that's just absolutely outrageous. Yeah, the, um, the, the, the headline itself uh, uh, was wild sex led to her death. Um, no, it wasn't. Yes. It was the brutal rape and bashing of her that led to her death at the hands yeah, of two absolutely. white men. Um, yeah. We're running out of time, unfortunately, Bronwyn, but um, is the silence around all this in um, across society and across the media, is that resulting in this violence being normalised and, and, you know, rendered invisible? Is it, is it just not being reported because people expect it to happen now, both victims, perpetrators and those that um, are on, onlookers? Well, Indigenous women, Indigenous families and people's children are reporting it and are screaming until their voices are hoarse that 
this is happening in our communities. It's the rest of Australia that is not listening and doesn't want to listen. And therefore, what we can see, there's a silence around this, which just normalises violence against Indigenous people. So when we hear another death in custody, it's almost like a byline. We hear a, a, an Aboriginal woman is murdered and, and they're, you know, in the minds of some of these people, it's and somehow deserving, somehow doesn't warrant upset. And if we think about, you know, just even the deaths in custody in recent times, five people in a matter of weeks, how is that not causing public outrage? So when we hear of deaths of individual women, um, whether they be in prison or whether they're on the streets, um, in their homes, um, yeah, it just doesn't cause the public outrage that one would expect of people who had empathy and humanity for other people. If you want to be in the social justice game, if you want to be uh, an advocate for social justice, you can't pick and choose which bit of the social justice spectrum you want to be. You have to fight for and have empathy for every just cause that is within that, whether it's for Aboriginal people, Aboriginal women, for refugees. Um, you can't just pick and choose if you want to be fair and him about this. Bronwyn, thank you so much for yeah, um, putting this all down into the, into one article. Um, it is well written, it's well researched. It's available at theconversation.com. Uh, but uh, Professor Bronwyn, thank you so much for uh, coming on, on the show. It's been great to speak to you again. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Dan. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.